0: So uh, this is week five, we're gonna be talking about Devoted, from Acts two forty two specifically, if you just wanna find that spot and then look up and let me know you're ready. Um, as we turn there, just wanna quickly remind you of what Joe has already reminded you of. This Wednesday night is women's ministry. Um, I really don't feel like there's a need to invite you because the attendance has been so amazing for women's and men's ministry this year. However, I do wanna let you know if you haven't come uh, on a Wednesday night, uh, women's ministry meets the third Wednesday night, of every month, I want to invite you to do so. If you're thinking, "I'm not sure if I'm going to come or not," I would invite you just to go ahead and make that decision to come and come expecting uh, to hear from God and to be uh, changed by God and to be encouraged um, by being with God's people. So that's this Wednesday night at 6:30. Acts 2:42 uh, begins with an interesting phrase, and it's really a description of a response. Okay. And there's one word in this phrase that's really going to govern our whole conversation today, and it's the word devoted, okay? So let me just read the phrase, and then we'll talk about what it means to be devoted. Acts 2, 42 says, and they devoted themselves. Really, that's about as far as we're going to make it uh, as far as our uh, Bible study is concerned today. Uh, everybody ready to go home? High five? Yeah. Except there's a lot of questions. What were they devoted to? What does devotion look like? And how in the world do you become devoted, right? So like if I were to poll the audience right now and ask the question, how many of you think you are a devoted person? The answer would come back really as a question, what are you talking about being devoted to, right? Because our devotion is determined externally by the object we're being devoted to, okay? So let me just ask some more specific questions. Uh, No raising of the hands. um, Save your confession uh, for you and Jesus. But um, if you think about people who evaluate your life and look at your life from the outside in, um, do people consider you to be a devoted person? Specifically, um, let's talk about marriage. Do the people around you, besides your spouse, uh, consider you to be a devoted person to your marriage? Does your spouse consider you to be a devoted person to your marriage? How about your kids? Do your kids, if I were to ask your kids, are your mommy and daddy, devoted to their role as parents? How many of our kids would say, yes, my parents are devoted to their role as parents? How about your workplace? If I were to call your boss, say, hey, how's so-and-so doing? Are they, would you, would you call them devoted to the team of people they work with and the tasks that you have given them? Are they devoted? Are they devoted to you as a boss? Are they devoted person see devotion right it's funny how we approach christianity our devotion to christianity we have this mindset that somehow we are to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps and muster up devotion as though it comes from us yet every other area in our life we know that devotion is contingent on the external the thing we're being devoted to i'll give you an example Um, there is in my garage a mountain bike that is collecting dust The, the tires are low on air Right? And it's something that I started off wanting to be devoted to. However, if you were to ask my mountain bike how long it's been since we've had a good ride, right, you would hear a lack of devotion. So, uh, what I learned from these things is this that as much as I want to be devoted, right, I can't want it enough. I can't stir myself up enough to be devoted to something, right? It's why we have exercise equipment in our house that becomes places to hang clothes. Our hobbies, right, are hanging in the garage, or stored in the attic. That workout video that we were going to do in 2012 lasted about 13 days, and then it's got filed away amongst the rest of our DVDs. And so we know this about ourselves, right? I mean, wanting to be devoted only goes so far. And so we're reading in the text that these early Christians, these guys, they just became believers, are described as being devoted. So here's what I wanna do first. We're gonna unpack um, this word devoted. Uh, About a year ago in life group, the life group that I was in, we were in this passage and we were studying word by word this text and we got stuck on this word devoted when we just started talking about the definitions, what it means and we spent 45 minutes just talking about what it looks like to be devoted. So here's just some general uh, phrases of definition about the word and what the word in the Greek literally translates and, and means. To associate closely with. Okay. So when you think about devotion, we're talking in this context about a devotion to God, right? That bears out in our devotion to one another. Okay? So somehow the way I'm devoted to you is a reflection of my devotion to who God is. And so the the, the first description is this, it's associated closely with. Okay? So when you think about your devotion to God and to God's people, ask yourselves this question. Am I am I Considered by people outside to be associated closely with God and the people of God. Do people look at my life and go, he or she is associated with God and God's people? Next, next phrase is to stay close to. Is that a, a priority in your life? When people look at your life from the outside looking in, do they say, yes, what I can say about this person is they make an effort to stay close to God and close to God's people. Make it even more practical to serve in close personal relationships. This is the idea that we come together as a team to to complete a task, but it's different from just a working environment. The idea is that we come close to one another in relationship first and then accomplish a task. It's a little different, right? This is what football coaches strive to to get into the DNA of their players, that there would be a chemistry there. It's not simply just running through the plays and, and making touchdowns, that we would be a family accomplishing a goal. Do people say that about our lives, or they say that about you. You're closely associated in personal relationship with God and his people in a way that your life is completing the task he's called you to. Uh, Here's another phrase, and and I love this one. To continue to do something with intense effort with the implication of, despite difficulty. That's a lot to pack into one phrase, but the idea is that there is gonna be difficulty, but despite that, there's a continuation, a devotion to move forward with intense effort. Do people describe, would you think that people would generally say that about your relationship with God and his people, that you display a certain intensity of effort despite, despite the obstacles that come your way, despite the difficulties that come? Now, this is a beautiful rendering of what what Luke, the author of Acts 2, is describing about these early believers. They were devoted. So now that we know that this is what he's talking about, this is what devoted means, my question that I'm going to raise up, because of my mountain bike, right, and because I know how the relationship with God goes when it's all based on me, I'm going to ask the question, how can I become devoted? Is anybody right now feeling that, okay, you're right, it's been Eight, nine months since my New Year's resolution, like, I need some inspiration. I need some motivation. I need something to stir up inside of me to get motivated. How many of us would complete those tasks on the to do list if we could just, right? If we could just get motivated, devoted to them. So the text begs the question where does devotion come from? So, what we're gonna do now is we're gonna look back at this sermon that Peter just preached, because this is what's happened. The Holy Spirit has fallen on the apostles. Peter stands up and preaches. These are the 3,000 people who just became believers, and now they're devoted. Okay? So we're going to look back at the sermon, the content of his sermon. See what he preached, right, that thrusted these people into devotion. Okay? So we're going to pick it up in verse 22. Verse 22. And so what I want to you, do for you um, as we read this, okay, just one little handle here. This will help you in reading the Bible. It's a very basic but a very important skill to have as you read the Word of God. You're looking for action and you're looking for who does the action. Okay? If you don't read the Bible this way, it's gonna frustrate you. You're gonna come across imperatives in the New Testament. Imperatives are commands. And you're gonna get frustrated at your lack of ability to complete these commands if you don't understand the way that the Bible reads. Okay? So, what we get throughout the Old and New Testament is this that every imperative, what's an imperative? Every command, is based on an indicative. Okay? You've probably been told when you read a therefore in the Bible, you ask the question what's the, what's the therefore? Therefore. Okay? I'll ask a deeper question. Why are there so many therefores in the New Testament? This is the reason why. Before you get the imperative of what to do, we get this beautiful explanation of who we are and where we are and what has been done to us. Therefore, live this way. Therefore, put off the old self. Therefore, commit yourself to the task. Every imperative is rooted in indicative. Like if you read the New Testament, one of the most brutal authors is James. If you read James, you know he's just like pulls no punches. He cuts to the point. This is, this is right. This is, this is not right. Do this. He's very imperative driven. However, you read verse 1. You read uh, chapter 1-1, chapter 1-18. In between his commands are stitched together these beautiful indicatives. Because we're now bondservants in Jesus, because of the grace Jesus has poured out on our lives, these beautiful indicatives, therefore, live this way, talk this way, do these things, okay? The, the Ten Commandments, right? Most popular place to go find imperatives, chapter 20, Exodus. What do you get in 19? God's saying, because I have delivered you, the indicative, because I have rescued you out as my people, now live as my people, okay? And so when we go to the Sermon of Peter, that's what we're listening for, that's what we're looking for in this text, Starting in verse 22, we're looking for who it is, what actions are being completed and who it is who is doing the actions. Verse 22, men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God, okay? So the action is attested. It's kind of a weird word. It means to reveal or to make known with the idea of being proven, okay? So it's to to, to reveal and to prove. So Jesus of Nazareth has been proven to you by who? By God. That's an important factor. Like, those who are being saved or seeing Jesus, God is the one revealing Jesus, still to this day. Like, nobody can look back on a service at Solid Rock and go, man, that was a beautiful sermon Jason preached, or a beautiful set of songs the band sang. Like, the way they put it together, they really revealed Jesus, they attested to Jesus. You can't ever say that. Why, because who is it who attests to Jesus? God, absolutely. So Peter wants you to know, listen, this Jesus has been revealed to you by God. And then he continues on, with mighty works, and wonders, and signs that, look at this, God did, so who's the one doing? God, through him in your midst. So what, what Peter is essentially saying, God did the work, he revealed Jesus, he proved Jesus to you, he revealed himself through Jesus to you, and he did it in front of you. Like, that's your part. That's what we're going to see here. He just did it in front of you, in your midst. Now, our part's coming in, as not flattering as it is. Be listening, because your part's coming in, okay? As you yourselves know, this Jesus, you can put the word was there, was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. So we get to the delivering Jesus up to the cross, basically, okay? And so at this point, when God says, you know what we're talking about, talking about Jesus who was delivered up, all of a sudden we go, that's right, that's where we came in. But it's so interesting to me that before we even come into the equation, God wants us to know that he's the one who delivered Jesus up. Like, taking all credit out. Like, this would be the point, if he didn't say it this way, where I would go, see, I had something to do with the cross, right? Right? And and so Peter wants you to know, before we even start here, right, God is the one who brought Jesus to the cross in front of your eyes. This is Isaiah 53, verse 10. It pleased God to lead his son to the sacrificial cross. Now, you and I have a part, and it's very, very minute. So Jesus was delivered up to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, not us, As strategic as the Pharisees were in capturing Jesus, arresting and killing him, Peter wants you to know God is the one who orchestrated that. So then he goes on to say, oh, here's your part. You crucified and killed him by the hands of lawless men. That that was your part. But don't think for a minute it was the act of your plan. It was God's plan. He just used you to carry out his plan. And then we get back to God. Verse 24, God raised him up. Um, The idea of resurrection and also ascension. God raised him up. Loosing or putting an end to the pangs or pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Skip down to verse 29. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David. So, what Peter's going to do now is he's going to reflect on one of these big names from the Old Testament. And we tend to hold the patriarchs in high regard. We call them heroes of the faith. However, if you go read their stories, they're much less than heroes. Okay, there's actually one hero in the Bible. His name is Jesus. So be careful how you elevate characters in the Bible. So here we've got David, patriarch from the past. That he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us today. Before he says anything else about David, he wants you to know. Here's what David was capable of accomplishing. Dying and being buried, right? And he's as good as dead in the grave, okay? So then he goes on to say, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with him an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne. So God had planned to work through David's lineage to set one of David's descendants on the throne. But who's the one who made the promise? Again, God did. David didn't do anything but die and be buried. God did everything else. Going forward, verse 31, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, And of that, here's our part, we are all what? Witnesses. See, over and over and again, our part, okay, is simply to behold, to see, to hear what God is doing. We're witnesses. He did this in our midst. Verse 33, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. Now he's going to talk about this in regards to us. Because of our salvation, we have now been ascended to the right hand. Our position is with God, and we have been filled with the Holy Spirit. So we have received this, okay, the end of verse 33. He has poured out this, that you yourselves are what? Seeing and hearing. Again, there's your role. Seeing and hearing. And then he's gonna go on to a prophecy of David and then to verse 36, which is where I really wanna land for just a moment. Verse 36 is Peter's point in the sermon where he summarizes all that he said. We're listening, okay? What was he saying? Verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus. Who's the one who did it? God. And then here we come in, whom you crucify. Okay, so Paul wants to nail something, excuse me, Peter's nailing something down in his sermon. He's saying, God did all this. Yes, he worked through lawless men, he worked through you, he worked through David, but all these guys did, right, was just become part of God's plan. He's the one who did this. He's the one who revealed this to you. All right. I want to look for just a moment at a few other passages from the New Testament so that you and I can see this is not just a one-term time occurrence of here's what God did and here's how people responded. Okay, I just shared with you earlier looking for indicatives to explain the imperative. So let's do that for just a minute and look at some of the things that God has done. Um, Ephesians 2, if you want to turn there, uh, turn to this passage often. It's a, it's a beautiful 10-verse explanation of the work of God. Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus where he just really explicitly explains our salvation. And so verse 1 of chapter 2 in Ephesians says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Now, that's your part in salvation. Like, I don't, like dead men don't do anything. Like, I mean, think about that. Even if a dead person is brought back to life physically, somebody else has to do it. Whether you use the electronic paddles, and, right? Clear, Or mouth-to-mouth resuscitation, you're doing the pumps, whatever it is, somebody else has to bring that person back to life. Dead men don't bring themselves back to life, okay? And so that's where Paul starts in Ephesians 2. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. But look at verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, look at this, he made us alive together with Christ. Who is the one doing that? God is. He is the one doing it. He made us alive. Verse five, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Verse six, and you've been raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Verse seven, so that in the coming ages he might show or display the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Verse eight. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Oh, I, faith, there we go. I get to bring something to the table. No, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may do what? Boast. Verse 10, for we are his worksmanship. He's working on us, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared when? Beforehand that we should walk in them. Do you not see this, over and over again, this rich indicative, God is the initiator here. He's the one doing the work in you, which gives us great hope when we come to passages like Acts 2.42, and we hear this early church was devoted, and we're like, I want to be more devoted, right? So what do we do? We go, ah, you know what, I'm going to wake up tomorrow, I'm going to set my alarm 30 minutes early, right, and I'm going to muster up my own devotion, and I'm going to be more devoted tomorrow. How does that work out? From the moment the alarm goes off, we're already not devoted, and there's this tension between what I want to do and yet what I don't want to do. See, it's not enough just to try to stir that up within yourself and pull yourself up by your own bootstraps and become determined to the task, and I'm going to be devoted to God. Like, how many of us would honestly say, I wish I could be more devoted to God? I wish I could be more devoted to God's people. We haven't even got to the people outside the church yet, the devotion to them. And so in this passage, we read this, and we go, whoa, somehow this initiates with God. In Titus, Paul's writing to Titus, a young pastor, and uh, he talks to Titus about what to teach, sound doctrine. In verse, uh, chapter 3, starting in verse 3, Paul says this to Titus, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. That's the opposite of being devoted to God and devoted to each other, right? So he's explaining this dead and trespasses issue. And it, and it played out like this. We, we didn't like God, we hated God, and we hated each other. Okay? So but then he moves forward. He says, verse four, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior did what? Appeared. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit all right so here's what I want us to see so far that first of all our salvation is initiated in God nobody woke up saying you know what I think I just want to be more religious with my life I'm going to come to God and figure out how to be saved Like, even the thought of wanting to do that is initiated by God, right? And so it's not a matter of me deciding, ah, I think I'll pick Christianity over Buddhism, or I'll pick Christianity over something. I'm just going to become a Christian today. The initiation of our salvation is in God, okay? So then we move into this idea of being devoted, and I I look at passages like 1 John 4, um, I think it's 19, 1 John four nineteen, where John says this, and he's like the expert on love. This is the disciple whom God, Jesus loved. He says this, verse 19, we love because, why? Because he first loved us. And, and you read that in context to those two chapters, chapter three and chapter four, John is blasting the church for not loving one another be- better. Like he's just throwing out these imperatives, 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 imperatives. Love each other. Right? And he he makes it plain. You're not taking care of each other's needs. Don't come and pretend like you love each other. And by the way, if you don't love each other, you don't really love God. He's just blasting them with these imperatives. Verse 19 is the indicative. Here's why he is so strong in this. Here's why he's so insistent on loving one another. Why? Because God first loved us. So here's, here's what we know. Devotion is initiated by who? God. Now that goes against the grain of everything that I grew up thinking. I grew up in a, in a mindset that said, "You need to work harder. The reason you 're not better at that sport is because you're not devoted enough. Some truth in that problem is what? I could only be so devoted, right? Like, I, I, I like the idea of riding a mountain bike. I actually enjoy doing it once I get there. However, just wanting to isn't enough, is it? Right Just Wanting to get in shape isn't enough. Just wanting to do better in my relationship with God is not enough. So our devotion initiates in God. When we ask the question, where does devotion come from? Devotion originates in in God. Um, This is is over and over again in Paul's theology when he teaches about salvation, Romans 5, um, verse 6. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. So while we were weak, he died. If you read it, verse 8 for God, but God shows His love for us in this: that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Like He wants you to get that in your mind. God initiated this. God initiated this. Our devotion to God initiates in God. There's a second layer to this. I want you to see. In uh, in First Corinthians twelve three, we'll we'll throw this on the screen. And you can see it. Uh, Therefore, I want you to understand, this is Paul, that no one speaking in the spirit of of God says Jesus is accursed. That's a no-brainer. Okay. So what he's saying is if anybody gets up and says, Jesus, be cursed, you can never say it's the Holy Spirit speaking. But the flip side of that is this, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Okay. And so what we're going to see is not only does God initiate devotion, he fuels it with his own spirit in us. Like it's both happening. Okay? Let, me, let me illustrate this for you um, with the relationship between myself and my oldest son, Hudson. If you wonder why I use him a lot, like there is something um, inerrant in the relationship between a father and a son. Um, at the moment, God called himself father that bears out an illustration for us. Okay? And so when I think about Hallie and I and our um, relationship with Hudson, he's at a place right now at five where he will come to us, um, not very often, but he will, he will on his own initiative say he loves us. Okay. parents, really, I mean, is there anything more beautiful than that? Like, when it's not attached to, can I have a piece of candy? Okay. And so when I think back on Hudson's devotion to me as a father and, the, and, and his expression of love to me, I, I have to understand the reasons why he does that is because I initiated that with him. Like from day one, I began saying to him, I love you. And I listen, and he giggle. You know, I mean, you know, not even day one, he just barely even like looked at me, right? And then a couple months in, he starts to giggle a little bit, and I'm listening for what? I'm longing for those words, I love you. And then at like six months, he starts to speak. He begins to say words like, stop, because that's what he's been hearing, right? And I'm listening for what? I love you. And then at eight, 10 months, 11 months, 12 months, they begin to put phrases together. Parents, you know what I'm saying? And you coach them. I love you. And you're longing to hear what? I love you back. Even if you coach a minute, it, it feels good, Right? And then at 12 months, 13 months, 14 months, 15 months, they begin to initiate phrases. And, and we're still longing to hear this from Calvin. Like we, we're, just, we're, we're helping him articulate the words, love, love you. Okay, now you say it, I love you. And he's like, no, daddy. And you're like, that's not at all what I told you to say. And we're longing to hear that which we're teaching him to say. Now think about that. But my love for Hudson and my love for Calvin is not just initiated in what I say, it's also initiated in what I do. Like there's, that whole it's cute when they poop at the beginning thing, that only lasts so long. Like by poop number three or four, you're like, this stinks. <laughs> like when are we going to start doing this in the potty? I'm tired of changing this, right? And that crying at night, it's cute at first when you hear their, right? They're using their vocal cords and your are is so cute. That only lasts so long. You're like, please, shut up. <laughs> Daddy needs to sleep. But let's think about this, right? So what do I do when, when he's crying? I, I get up with, with I got up with Hudson and and I spoke to him, I rocked him, I sang to him, I prayed with him. Okay? What was my goal? To get him to quit crying. However, I could have got him to quit crying physically. I'm not trying to I'm just think about it. I could have, but I didn't. Why? Because I love him. I began to display love to him by what? Being in relationship with him, talking him through it, singing to him, doing anything I could. To get him to quit crying. He began learning as an infant. Daddy loves me. He began hearing as an infant. Daddy loves me. And how I long for the day where he returns it, right? And expresses it to me. But who initiated that? I did, right? I did. So God initiates love and what he does for us. This is what Paul's point is, what Peter's point is. Here's what God's done. Here's what God has done. But it gets more beautiful than that. Like, there's a second part of that that, that Hudson has begun to express in, as, he, as he sees the way I interact with him, and I'm going to show you a picture of something in my office. I'm jumping ahead, Rick. Uh, this is a picture of my office. If you've been in there, this is what it looks like. There's a door uh, that has all these drawings from Hudson on it, okay? And so let me just give you background. Um, Hudson comes with me after school to work many days of the week, and, uh, and so we do this reward system, and, and however, sometimes... Um, if he uh, hasn't done what he's supposed to be doing, like followed his imperatives, there'll be discipline, right, as a good parent. And so like, I'll, I'll begin to take things away from him. He's like, well, then what can I do? I'm like, here's some blank paper and a pen. You don't even get colors. You can, you can draw. And I'll never forget this day. I think all these came from the same day. Um, I was sitting there in my office working, and he just one by one kept bringing these pictures to me. He set them on my desk, set them on my desk. And then he's like, Daddy, can I have a, can I have a nail i like, you're not going to be nailing to my wall, bro. How about some tape? He's like, okay. And so he's like, well, where can I tape them? I said, well, you can tape them to that door. Okay, he's in trouble. And he's bringing these pictures to me, and I'm letting him tape them to the door. And all the while, I mean, he's, he's thinking he's impressing me. Right, parents? And, and on some level, there's a gratification. Like, I'm joyed in this. Like, I'm, I'm enjoying listening to him interpret the drawings for me and putting them on the wall. Like, I enjoy that. However, if these came from your kids, I mean, I love your kids on some level. Really, I'm going to be like, not impressed. Right? Because the drawings aren't that good. It's not his talent that caused me to put those on the wall, is it? It's not the fact that he's been good that causes me to put those on the wall, is it? You know why I put those on the wall? Because I'm good. Now, as imperfect as that illustration is, God the Father, right? He accepts our gifts, He accepts our devotion right he accepts the best we can bring why because because our gifts are good i mean seriously no because we've been good no because he is good because he is good see this is the root of our devotion to him because what he has done for us and because of who he is devotion is initiated by God Himself. I want to read something to you. This is out of um, Charles Spurgeon. If you know who Charles Spurgeon is, he was a famous preacher. And uh, somebody later on, I think after he passed away, compiled excerpts from his sermons into a devotion book called Mornings and Evenings. And it's it's uh, set up by the calendar year. You can go there and like whatever today's date is, you can go read the devotion for today. There's a morning devotion and an evening devotion. Okay, I just pulled an excerpt from the June 28th morning reading on something that Spurgeon preached at one point in time concerning concerning all this. It begins this way. The Holy Spirit turns our eyes entirely away from self. So think about that. I've got to get better at just turning my eyes off of myself and looking to God. And Spurgeon would say, the Holy Spirit turns your eyes off of you onto himself. He tells us that we are nothing but that Christ is all in all. He tells us we're nothing, but Christ is all in all. Look at this. Remember, therefore, it is not thy hold of Christ that saves you. It is Christ. Now think about that. He's tr- gonna begin talking about this idea in our minds that we have a hold of Jesus in our salvation, okay? So we've grasped a hold of him, and he's gonna say, your hold on him isn't what saves you. Look at what He says, It's not thy hold on Christ that saves thee, it is Christ. It is not thy joy in Christ that saves thee, it is Christ. It is not even faith in Christ, though that be the instrument, Ephesians 2.8. It is Christ's blood and merits. Therefore, look not so much to thy hand with which thou art grasping Christ as to Christ. So as you think about your relationship with Jesus and you've got a hold of him, what Spurgeon wants you to do is to look past your hand and see him. This is what Paul talks about in Philippians 3, how he presses on to take hold of that which has already taken hold of him. As you reach out to take the hand of Jesus in salvation, he's the one that grabs a hold of you with the firm grip. You see how that changes things? We tend to think in our mindset, I'm achieving this, I'm working towards this, I'm grabbing a hold of him, I'm causing myself to become in Christ." Spurgeon and Paul and Peter want to say, hey, back up. He's the one reaching down and taking hold of you. Don't look at your grasp on him. Look past your grasp and see him. So then he continues. We shall never find happiness by looking at our prayers, our doings, or our feelings. It is what Jesus is, not what we are, that gives rest to the soul. Amen if we would at once overcome Satan and have peace with God, it must be by, and I put the word only here, looking unto Jesus. The scriptures talk over and over again the power of beholding Jesus, the author and the finisher right, of our faith. How do, we, how do we get there? We fix our eyes on him. Just beholding him transforms us. It, it builds up devotion and commitment and love just by beholding him. We look unto Jesus, keep thine eye simply on him. Let his death, his sufferings, his merits, his glories, his intercession be fresh upon thy mind. When thou wakest in the morning, look to him. When thou, when thou liest down at night, look to him. This is Charles Spurgeon, June 28th, morning reading. Devotion is, devotion originates in God, and it's fueled by God. Let's go back to Acts 2, and I want us to see this together. So Peter's preached this fantastic sermon, okay? This fantastic sermon, and we're gonna pick this up then in verse 37, okay? So 36 summarized it. God did all this in Jesus. Oh, by the way, all you had to do with it, you you were there, you crucified him. Verse 37. Now when they heard this sermon, Look at what happens. They were cut to the heart. It's a beautiful word. It literally means to feel conviction with no solution. I'll tell you what I believe. I believe this is the Holy Spirit of God right now. As Peter proclaimed the gospel, the Holy Spirit began to work in them and convict them, cut them to the heart, and look at their response. Brothers, what shall we do? And what a fantastic question. All we need to know is what to do. What to do. And I love Peter's response. What do we do? Peter said to them, verse 38, repent. Okay? Repentance is literally the process of taking your eyes off of the world and sin and things that are not glorious and turning to behold something that is glorious and holy, which is Jesus. That's what repentance means literally, turning. It's not just saying, I'm sorry. It's not just confessing sin. It's saying, I'm turning away from that to this. Like, that's the most effort we get in this whole process of just turning away and looking at Jesus. But then he goes on to say, Repent and be what? Baptized. Now, that's such an important part of this text. The last two weeks, we've been talking and teaching on baptism and the symbolism that we uh, see in baptism. And it's like we can't get to the end of the symbolism, right? So I taught on it for a week. We came back last week. We had eight baptisms brought out the text brought out more implications of baptism symbolism to the part where when you cheer when somebody comes up you're symbolizing the angels in heaven cheering at salvation and but it just keeps going like i didn't see this until i read this text this week do you, do you notice that nowhere in the scripture does anybody baptize themselves you, you wonder why jesus didn't baptize himself part of it was the prophecy but god's the one who came up with the prophecy and designed baptism to happen in a certain way to display a certain thing like that moment of letting go of the sides right, and you're completely at the mercy of somebody else, okay, and somebody else is baptizing you, right, it's a beautiful symbolism that it is God who saves. Be baptized. Don't go baptize yourselves. Be baptized. Be saved. If you uh, hang around church long enough and Maybe if you're not a believer here today and you're wondering, why do they continue to talk about and sing about an event from history? I understand it was a big deal, but why do they continually bring it up in every song and every sermon? Is it just some event they can't get over? Okay? Now, part of it is that. Okay? that's not all of it. Part of it is that. Part of our expression is worship. As we think back on the cross and we behold once again, both the cruelty and the beauty of what Jesus did in love on our behalf, on the cross, his death, he was buried and he resurrected. As we, as we think back on that, as we meditate on that, as we sing about that, that does well up worship inside of us. Like there is part of it that we just can't get over that. okay, But there's a second part of that. You see, it's not just a past event right, that did something to us or for us. It is a past event that continues to work on us. If anybody is transformed here today to be more like Jesus, it's the results that were accomplished on a past tense event. That's why we continue to bring it up. We continue to sing about it and preach about it. It's not just because we can't get over it. That's part of it. But it's because we understand that in that past tense work, Jesus continues to work on us. Even our devotion here today. If anybody is going to leave here more devoted to Christ, it's because you have beheld more Clearly, the work of Jesus on the cross. I can only motivate you for so long. I don't even try to be a motivational speaker. I mean, you high-five me on the way out, and then by the end of lunch, you've forgotten everything I say. my, My goal is to do something that's powerful, and so you know what I can do? All I can do is say, God, let them see Jesus more clearly than I can proclaim him. So I get up here to teach. My prayer is God, preach a better sermon than I'm capable of preaching that they might hear the words of God because that's where the life transformation is going to come from. It is a past event and it continues to wreck us in a good way and change us today. And So, repent and be baptized. Look at verse 41. I love this. the Brand new believers. So, those who received his word, look at this were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls, pretty big day. Verse 42, now we know who the they is, and they, these brand new believers, devoted themselves. Their devotion was purely a response to what God had done and who God was, period. This is not this fantastic, super devoted religious group of people. Like We don't get a whole lot of description of who these people were, as a matter of fact. Why? Because it doesn't matter. We were in that crowd, right? Like at some point in time, if, you, if you're a believer, you came to Christ because you heard the word, faith ignited in you, and if we're not careful, we'll place a big monument there and go, whoa, you know, this preacher, or this church, or this event, or this song, and Peter would say, forget the songs. It's the work of God in you. It's the Holy Spirit of God working in you, and he's the one who continues to work today. So how can I leave here more devoted. Before we get to just a description of what devotion looks like, how can I leave here more devoted? How can I wake up tomorrow and be more devoted? Spurgeon said it. I wake up with my eyes looking for Jesus. Before I think about the tasks that I have to accomplish when the alarm goes off, before I think about do I have the energy to get out of bed, I'm, I'm looking for Jesus. When I read the Bible in the mornings, it's not so I can be a better Bible reader or so I can brag about me having quiet times every day. I do that to behold Jesus, and in beholding Him, right, my affections are kindled, my devotion is stirred up. He's the one working in me. Now, verse forty-three through forty-seven is where we're going to be for the next six weeks. I'm going to skip down, Rick, to verse. Um, I think probably forty. Let's start at forty-four. Let's start at forty-three. If you have that one queued up, where, all we're looking at now is what did it look like to be devoted. Okay, we, we defined it. We talked about where it originates. What did it look like, just in plain words, to see people who are devoted? So here we go, verse 43. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Verse 44, here, here it is. And all who believed were what? Together. Like, that's the first part of it. It's why, like, when I get up here, I'm so grateful that you are in this place. I don't even really, I don't know what the attendance is. I can tell when it's a bigger or smaller crowd. But like, what excites me is that you're here. You can't even begin devoted if you don't show up. And so they were all together in one place and they had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together And breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. That's simply what it looks like to be a devoted Christian. Devoted to God, devoted to one another. And so we end today asking the question where does my devotion come from? It comes from God. So you, you know what you could do, actively do, for the rest of the service to leave here more devoted? As we, as we pray to Jesus, you could engage your heart in praying to Jesus. As we sing songs about what he's done, you can engage your mind, you can think about, you can engage your heart in what he has done and who he is. If, if, if we do that, and that's all we do is just behold, we leave here today more devoted as the people of God. I want to ask the worship team to come back up, and I'm going to pray for us, and we'll be dismissed after a few songs I'll give you just a minute as we bow to pray and, and I want you to contemplate yourself for just a moment I want to begin where I started today um, are, you, are you a devoted person are you truly devoted to God are you truly devoted to his people? And if your answer, like mine, is not quite enough yet, then I'm going to pray for you and for myself in this moment.